Phil has a confession to make. And I know we talked about this previously, but we didn't let out in the street because I thought it was too early to shock the world with this. But Phil, would you like to describe who your neighbor was when you were growing up in the, in the uh, uh, hard streets of Buffalo? I was neighbors with uh, musical performer Rick James. And I say neighbors loosely because I lived in a suburb of Buffalo, New York uh, called East Aurora, where, you know, we had like 10 acres and he had an adjacent, you know, I don't know, 10 or 12 acres. Uh, but he had a house uh, up there. And, you know, back in the 80s, that's where he hung out and, I don't know, had parties or whatever he did. Did Rick James stuff? Rosemary, you know who Rick James is, right? I had to look it up because I was initially thinking the guy that sang um, Never Gonna Give You Up, which would be, um, yeah, cool cool enough. That's Rick Astley, not Rick James. Rick James is is super freak, which is... Yeah, not that's a good song. That that's that's cool. No, that went, Rick Astley was just a totally different neighbor than, than Rick James would be. But Rick Rick James had some pretty wild parties. You know what? He had wild parties when he was in like L.A. or New York. I don't know if like he came back to Buffalo to like dry out. You know, maybe maybe that's what it was. I think I'd rather go to a Rick James than a Rick Astley party based on the kind of music that might be played. Even though Never Gonna Give You Up is a is a excellent song. Super Freak's a very popular song even today. I mean, that guy is super talented. Come on, let's admit it. He's a super talented guy. The experience could be akin to the techno train. Rosemary doesn't seem to remember that either, even though she's and she swears she was never on it, but man, I don't know. The techno train. I don't remember going on it. Yeah, Rosemary, this is our two hundredth episode. Yeah, how exciting. Did you think that when you started it? No, I thought you told me we would never get to 200. I'd never say something like that. But no, you started it before. I came on, on board after you and Dan had been going for a while. Um, I don't know. Maybe you're up to episode, I don't know, in, somewhere in the tens, less than 100. Less than 100, yeah. I think you're in the 50s or 60s somewhere. Yeah, you've been along for the long ride. Yeah, I went, went back and watched some of those early ones. It was um, heavily lightning focused and very much um, a means to get your super knowledge on the industry you know, out there. And now it's grown much more into, you know, covering the topics of the day. And um, yeah, the team's grown. Four of us here most weeks now. That's, yeah, it's been really exciting to be part of this whirlwind journey. So you think we're going to make it another 100 episodes, Rosemary? We'll be hologram podcasting by then. (laughs) Podcasting in orbit, probably. Especially if you live next to Rick James. Not if we're flying on Boeing, Alan. The Spanish unions are hopeful following a meeting between Spain's prime minister and the Siemens Energy CEO over at Davos uh, about a subsidy for Siemens Gamesa. Uh, The unions say the Spanish government is negotiating guarantees and communicating with Siemens Gamesa, but uh, the union is concerned about maintaining jobs and maintaining production. So Siemens Gamesa has about 5,000 employees in Spain, about 1,000 in the Basque country but has not set a date to resume production of the 4X and 5X machines. Uh, so the Spanish government is starting to step in and almost guarantee at this point 3 billion euros to keep this, the jobs in Spain and everybody employed. Now, 
this is a little disconcerting because there seems to be a lot of discussion between the Spanish government and Siemens Gamesa, but there hasn't been any real action. The first number I heard, Phil, was 4 billion euros about six weeks ago. Now it's down to 3 billion euros uh, in guarantees. The longer this goes on, the more at, at risk the, uh, the Siemens Gamesa employees are, right? Spain loves to fight for their unions until it comes time to pay the bill, uh, at which point they can't decide whether or not they have any money, and they usually don't. I mean, the thing here as well is we just heard laying off engineers, right? And the other side of it was, hey, we may actually, this was a couple months ago, we may actually re-engineer this entire platform, basically kind of push it aside and make a new one. So if these jobs are going to be in the factory building whatever Siemens Gamesa's new platform is, that might be a year, two, three years out? Yeah, it could be. Well, there's, they're saying that, that uh, there's about 15,000 su- supplier workers that are feeding the Siemens Gamesa system in Spain. So that's a lot of employees to not be employed if uh, there's any sort of real setback. They're, they're talking about starting up the plants here in the next couple of weeks is what Siemens Gamesa has been saying in first quarter of this year, which is not that far from being complete, everyone. Uh, and if that doesn't happen, what are they going to do? I don't know. And it doesn't seem like there's been any, and we'll talk about this in a minute, but there's, if there doesn't seem to be the continuity there to fire up the production line again. But what orders, I mean, they stopped taking orders on these platforms. So what, what exactly are they producing? They, you know, we just checked and there's about 2000 units that were on order. Uh, or were part of their their uh, you know development pipeline theoretically, where the the developer wanted to be able to use the four x and and five x one forty five one fifty five platform, but they never you know if they aren't fulfilling those orders and they're not taking new orders, then I'm slightly confused how they're going to start up a factory doing anything, unless they're going to just say that a lot of the orders that were deferred from last year are going to be fulfilled, you know, this year and and moving forward now. Um, But that can only happen if they actually have a, an engineering and technological fix to both the supply chain issue and the wrinkles. And has anybody seen them confirm any of that at this point? I haven't. Wasn't it Rosemary who thought that they were going to try to move the blade design to the Siemens design that were just a one piece uh, installation. It wasn't with the bladder and the, and the one-piece design instead of the typical Gamesa two-piece design. It, didn't we all agree that that was likely to happen? The other side of that is, is it's not just blade problems, right? There's other rotating equipment problems and stuff in these turbines, so it's not just the blades are going to change over and be all good. I mean, the other solution they could have too here is if they had taken, you know, Siemens Gamesa has taken kind of a pause. They have the 3.4, the, you know, the SG 3.4132. They have the, the 145. They have some other three megawatt turbines that they could build, I guess. But are they going to build them in Spain, Joel? I think that's the question because a lot of those other blade platforms and uh, nacelle platforms are built elsewhere. I, I think it's, it's trouble. So the discussion among the engineering community over the last week or so has been about what former Siemens uh, CEO Joe Kaiser uh, said in an interview over in Davos. And it, I, I had to search the interwebs, Phil, and find the actual interview because it wasn't a transcript anywhere. And it was just a one-on-one, like he was just stopped on the road and there's a, a German uh, uh, interviewer from Welt, W-E-L-T, magazine or television. I'm not even sure what that is. 
So I, I had to translate the discussion because I wanted to, to, to see if they actually said that they had got rid of or fired or displaced or whatever they call it, engineers. And it doesn't look like he said that. So and now I'm, I don't speak fluent German, but Google Translate does. So I ran it through Google Translate. So this is basically what he said. Well, I mean, it's close, right? Uh, uh, so the question was, like, why, why is everybody still in place in leadership uh, with all the problems that Siemens come So why are those people still in their roles? And what Kaiser said was essentially the, those who designed the machines uh, when the design was happening and who also were involved in the construction of the 4X and 5X machines, that uh, they had been fired, that the, that the Siemens Energy CEO had fired them. Uh, for doing the wrong thing and, and uh, because there were quality deficiencies and they're trying to fix that system. So the, I think from, I think this is probably Rosemary's point is if you're trying to start a factory uh, making blades and all your engineers are fired, there's no chance you're going to start anything up this quarter. You'd be lucky to start something up this year, wouldn't you, Rosemary? It just, they just need engineers. Yeah. I mean, that that makes sense. Those sorts of things don't happen happen overnight yeah but i mean they if if they're going to start the factory they would have had to have a plan in place already they also would i mean okay i can appreciate the fact that they got rid of the people who were responsible for the design although to me that still sounds like they fired the engineers even though he might not explicitly say they fired the engineers uh so it, it's i mean the the reality of this though is like we were just talking about i mean you don't go from you know humming along with like you know 13 gigawatts worth of order book for this this product platform to we're going to stop selling stop fulfilling orders we've got a product quality issue you know to oh well we fixed it and we're just going to magically go right back into production now like that none of that stuff happens overnight so presumably this is, you know, a few weeks or months in advance of, you know, them having resolved the issue. The question I think that everyone wants an understanding of is, okay, well, if you resolved it and you're ready to go back into production, to what degree of satisfaction? Because they've done nothing but come out and say, you know, all the negative things about themselves that they possibly could to shoot themselves in the foot. How about coming out and saying, we've got a fix. Here's what it is. And we're ready to we're ready to start selling turbines again. I, I have again, I haven't seen them say or do that. I think it's one thing to have figured out what the problem was, and I, I mean, I think it's entirely possible that the problem is something that was that was quick to fix. I mean, it's not always, but you know, often a, a problem, a big problem, can be caused by you know a new design change that was just you know a cost out design change, and so they they already have something proven that they can go back to. Or it was somebody not following a, you know, a work instruction that was written incorrectly and so they already know, you know, how to fix it. So the fixing of the problem is not, it's not um, implausible that that could happen quickly. But what I do think is a bit weird is that they have all of this like resources and energy to spend on something that isn't going and fixing all of the, all of the huge, you know, population that's out there with problems. I mean, I know that there are owners of wind farms who are beside themselves about, you know, these problematic blades that they've got and are not happy with the, um, you know, the way that uh, this has been taken care of, the way that they're being taken care of. And I think they might be a little bit surprised to see that apparently 
Siemens Gamesa do not have every single spare engineering resource, um, every single spare technician working on, you know, fixing the problems for the turbines that they've already sold. I think that's probably the more surprising thing to me. If the problem with the blades was wrinkles, how long would it take to correct that issue and get back in production? I mean, it's 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 really impossible to say without um, having seen the root cause analysis and being able to comment on it publicly um, because it, it just depends on on what the issue is. Like I said, um, you know, I mean, there's a lot of different things that can cause uh, a blade wrinkle, but if they have, if that, whatever the change was that caused the wrinkles, if they can just go back to what they were doing before that change, then that would be simple. They already know how to do it. The, you know, it's already validated in the field. Workers already know how to do it. They've already, you know, qualified all of the materials involved. That would be easy. But if the the, the feature that wrinkled is part of a, you know, a new new design or a new material that is integral to the blade and the blade certification, um, then that would be harder because then they're going to have to come up with a solution and then they're going to have to do enough testing to make sure that their um, new design can be certified. Because if it's not really similar to the old thing, then it's not going to be a straightforward process to just say, okay, you know, this is the same design intent as the original design, so no need to recertify. Um, yeah, and then they also need to do the same for the, the repair method also needs to be certified if it's not something that is, you know, just a n- normal kind of thing. Would you say if it was a major wrinkle, 10 days per blade for a team? To repair. To repair, yeah. If it was a big major issue, they had to go inside maybe outside, anything like that. Like a t- say, we, say we said 10 days per blade. It can really vary. It's probably not going to be less than a week if it's a major thing, but um, it can really push out. What pushes out the repair time is, um, you know how wind turbine blades are, are made roughly. I guess most people um, listening to the podcast know you've got your um, yeah, composite material. So you've got fiberglass, carbon fiber um, that's carrying the load and it carries a load in the direction of the fibers. So if you cut a fiber then you can't transmit load across that anymore. So when you repair a wind turbine blade, you can't just cut out the wrinkle, like, um, you know, get a hole saw and (laughs) cut out the wrinkle and then put a circular plug back in there because that plug is not doing anything structurally because there's no way for the the loads to to transfer along um, across the break. So what they have to do instead is they have to chamfer the cut. So they'll remove all of the, the damaged area but then they have to, and people who are watching on YouTube can see me moving my hands, but um, I'll describe it for people listening on the podcast. You come out at a, a nice shallow angle, right? So that you, um, yeah, you, you, you grind a much bigger area on the surface than is um, at the, the lower edge of the uh, laminate that you're fixing. And what that means is that angle means that there is some contact area between every single layer of fiberglass or or carbon fiber um, that overlaps with the repair patch. And what that means is that you might have a relatively small um, damage, even if it is small, which it probably isn't, if it's a, you know, it's a major defect, so it's probably large to start with. You grind that away, but if it's in a very thick section of the blade, then you've got a lot of layers of, um, of material that you have to chamfer through. So that means that the repair actually gets quite big, the thicker the laminate. And then, so that's, you know, one, one bad thing that um, causes to longer time because you also wouldn't likely do the whole laminate in one go. You'd probably do a few layers and then let that cure and then do a few more. Um, but where it gets complicated is if when you chamfered to, um, you know, for the repair, 
you might chamfer through some other feature, you know, um, so you end up cutting into some other material or what gets really complicated is if your chamfer goes all the way over like the web, say, so you've also cut through a glue joint um, or, you know, some other feature like that. That's where you get really complicated repairs. And so then you have to repair that as well. And then you have to chamfer for that repair as well. So then it grows even more. And then, you know, the chamfering for the repaired repair might end up impacting another feature. And so that's how you can, you can get huge, huge, huge damage. Um, and sometimes it, it takes, you know, weeks or longer, um, you know, weather is probably not on their side either. If they have a lot of these turbines in the Northern Hemisphere, it's a terrible time to be, um, to be repairing because, you know, resonone cures at certain temperatures. So if you're trying to <laughs> set up warm tents for things to cure in, it just, you know, adds, um, adds a lot more expense and time to the whole thing. So you would think that Siemens Gamesa would be going down the route to repair these things. And Rosemary, I think you're right. If if they're trying to repair a lot of blades in the northern U.S. or up in Canada, they're going to be in a world of hurt because of the delay to get that done. On the certification side, what are you talking about in terms of time? Like if they had to go back and recertify a blade, are you talking about a one-year delay, a two-year delay? What's that look like? So, okay, the best case scenario is, is, is nothing. There's no recertification required because all of the methods that they're using in this repair are methods that have already been certified. So, I mean, you can... You, you, my clients are constantly surprised at how much you can repair a blade and have it still be the same design intent and everything just like totally normal from the point of view of, um, you know, certification or, you know, engineers don't even get, need to get involved. If you can just use all your standard methods, um, then the technicians just, just know, okay, you know, this size and, you know, this type of material, this many layers um, over these features that, you know, this is the method we use and you just go ahead and do that. When it's a little bit out of the ordinary, then you might have to send it to an engineer to get calculations checked to make sure that it's not in, you know, so maybe you're reducing the the strength or fatigue life a little bit um, and an engineer will check that that's okay for the location because, you know, all of a wind turbine blade isn't built with the exact same safety factor. Um, a lot of the blade is more safe than it needs to be. Um, and so if you're, you know, slightly weakening the blade in an area that's already excessively safe, then that's okay. So you'd get an engineer to check that. Um, and then only if you couldn't use your standard method and end up with your original design and intent, then you would need to come up with a new repair method and have that new repair method certified. And then that would take a while. Um, I mean, it depends how you can rush things or, or not, depending on how critical it is to the business, but you know, probably a small number of months up to a large number of months, depending on how much you're rushing. Based on where you think Gamesa is right now, what do you think has happened? Do you think they're in that longer time frame because the factory hasn't started up? They're definitely going slower than, than, than their customers would like them to be, right? But I mean, that's probably always true. Is it because they have a complicated repair and they're scrambling to try to you know, come up with a, a good repair method? Or is it because they just have so many that they have to do and you know they have gone through, you know, made business decisions about which customers to prioritize, um, and the people that are at the bottom of the pecking order, um, you know, might be getting the runaround because not because there isn't a method, just because they're the you know the lowest priority. And um, yeah, you, you can't really say one or one or the other. And it's not like I've spoken to everybody that owns a, um, an affected turbine, so I don't know that everybody's upset, but I do know that. <laughs> Some people are upset about um, how slowly it's going. I'll give you some really, really 
round numbers just from what we're talking about here. So from, from Phil's data at Intel store, we know that there's 726 of these 4X and 5X machines out in the field. So I'm gonna take 726, I'm gonna multiply it by three. That's gonna give us 2,178 blades that need, that say they all have the same kind of wrinkle and they need to be fixed. Uh, 30, 30%, Joel, the number is 30% is what Siemens Camesa has been saying. 30% of the blades are effective. So if we're at 2,178 times 0.3, 653 blades then is what you're saying. Okay, so now we're saying 10 days a piece for each of those blades. We know that's it's a, that's a hard number to come up with, but that's something we're going to use for round. So now we're at 6,534 team days to do this, okay? Team is three, three, team is three people in the field. So now you're at 19,600 technician days. And if you were to say you wanted to solve this thing over the course of two years, we'll divide that by, so that would be, so that if you're now you're at peer two years working 365 days a year, that's not the case. Uh, we'll divide by five and seven, uh, five sevenths, just to give it a, um, a working week. So right now we're up to 30, 38 technicians working that whole time. And then if we're going to add in some uh, weather risk, we add weather weather risk in there to the uh, at 30%. We're at 49 technicians working two years straight to solve this problem. The reality is, is, though, that there's going to be more than 49 technicians working across the entire fleet anyway, so that'll shorten the cycle, but it's still, you know, this is at least going to take a year to resolve. Yeah, because you think about it from the wind farm owner operator's perspective, and, you know, they've got a wind farm with these blades where they know that 30% of them are <laughs> likely to fail, perhaps catastrophically, so they're either got them turned off and aren't generating anything, which, yeah, for Two years, I mean, you can imagine how they're <laughs> going to react to that news. You know, you spent millions and millions on an um, asset that's supposed to be productive and it's just costing you money, not earning any. Obviously, that's devastating. Um, and Or, yeah, even if it's just one year, still the same. Um, or they've told them, no, no, you can keep on operating it safe. You just have to, you know, check them every six months or every year or whatever. And so then it feels probably a bit like a game of Russian roulette where it's like, okay, but are my technicians safe? Are the general public safe? Like this is going to be a company ending incident if these blades start breaking off and, and flinging off, you know, it's, um, it, it's not something that you can really apply statistics to that, that well, especially when, you know, the population is quite small, fracture mechanics of composite materials is so, it's, it's impossible to to predict, um, you know, with any sort of certainty and the consequences are just so, so bad as, you know, potentially loss of life and um, definitely just terrible PR even if um, no one is, no human is injured. So, yeah, it's um, it's it's always really, really hard when you get these serial defects that are across a large population um, it never goes fast enough. Um, and yeah, that, you know, it'll be up to the contracts of every individual wind farm about how, you know, these losses are accounted for, but it's certainly, I've, I mean, I've never worked on a project like this where the wind farm owner was compensated to the extent that they really didn't care how long it took for them to get up again. You know, it's like, it's a limited amount that you can claw back. Um, and it's incredibly, incredibly stressful. Well, like the unions at Siemens Camesa in Spain, we're all going to have to wait and see. There's a lot more to come. Hey, Uptime listeners. We know how difficult it is to keep track of the wind industry. That's why we read PES Wind Magazine. 
PES Wind doesn't summarize the news. It digs into the tough issues, and PES Wind is written by the experts, so you can get the in-depth info you need. Check out the wind industry's leading trade publication, PES Wind at PESWind.com. We had a, a interesting Slack conversation. I guess most of our conversations are on Slack anymore, which is weird to have, but so we had a discussion about the Boeing Max 9 and the door plug, I'll call it, that left that Alaska Airlines airplane a couple of weeks ago now. And in the United States, there's a, a lot of discussion online about the CEO of Boeing should be let go and they should restructure Boeing and do a bunch of, of changes there. And my comment is, well, why are we getting rid of the CEO of Boeing for what intrinsically was probably a, a one single mechanic that left? bolts out or didn't put nuts on or something of the sort at his station versus a sort of a systemic problem that's happened at pretty much everything that's happening in Spain at the moment. It's, it's a much broader problem where Siemens Gamesa hasn't made any management changes at the highest level. They have evidently made changes at the engineering and some production level and probably some managers. Uh, there's just two different approaches to that system, but the uh, we, we seem to go back and forth about you know, Boeing should hold everybody accountable. Yeah, maybe. Uh, but at Siemens, they, the same level of uh, discourse wasn't there, and which was weird. So maybe we can just describe both sides of this situation. And being on the engineer, I guess because we're engineers, we see both sides of it. Maybe that's part of it. Well, but keep, keep in mind, by the way, the Siemens Energy also did get rid of the Siemens Gamesa CEO like two or three times before any of this happened. So I think maybe they were just looking for continuity. This wasn't necessarily because of the blade thing. No, but I think as well, as Rosemary is going to hopefully point out here, when Siemens Energy acquired the remaining parts of Siemens Gamesa, immediately there were problems. Like they, they got really blindsided by it and yet they didn't make any leadership changes and that's her prerogative. They own it. Uh, the the Boeing situation I don't think really applies here, but it does seem to be a connection, at least the United States, on the problems. And yeah, so I think our Slack discussion started with somebody I can't remember who saying, you know, what's the CEO got to do with it? This was just one manufacturing worker who forgot to, you know, put some plugs in. That's that's on that's on him. That's his fault. He didn't do that. No, he or or she. Um, and I said, no, it can never a problem of this scale. It can't be possible for that to happen. If it's possible for one person to have a bad day and, you know, cause a major safety incident like this, then that is a systematic problem that the CEO is ultimately responsible for after, you know, a number of other layers. So, you know, like with, with something like this door plug, your first line of defense, I guess, is, um, you know, the design. It, there should be some redundancy so that even if, you know, something gets left off, it, it's still safe. Um, then second in your manufacturing process, it shouldn't be possible to, um, <laughs> to just forget to do something. So, you know, you have a range of, of ways that you, you try to make it very hard to do, um, to, to manufacture incorrectly. So you'd have, you know, um, written instructions, you'd have training, um, then they'll also do things like, you know, if you've got a certain number of fasteners, then they will be pre-kitted. So, um, you know, the number of fasteners, not like the worker goes over to a shelf and pulls out four plugs and puts them in. Um, and it's like, oh, oops, it actually was supposed to have five, but you forgot one. It, it should, you know, come with every fastener that that worker needs for their shift should be pre-kitted. Um, 
So that would be the second one. Third, you can do things like weighing assemblies to make sure that, you know, they weigh what they're supposed to because they've got all the parts in it. Um, or you can do other um, quality testing, you know, at that factory floor level. Then, you, you know, you should have some sort of quality assurance team that is going around and, and checking that everything is being done right. Um, so it's kind of like, you know, layers and, and layers and layers. So if they didn't have that kind of redundancy built in, then, you know, that's the head of engineering's fault and, you know, who chose the head of engineering and make sure they're doing a good job, the, the CEO. So, you know, it kind of, you know, there's the worker, there's the supervisor, there's the person that was doing the kitting, there's a QA person, um, there's the QA person's supervisor, there's the, you know, like there's just, there's so many people that, that should have had to fail for this to happen. And if they didn't all fail um, and it was, you know, a freak occurrence that they will then, you know, change their processes for. But if, you know, the, the system was designed so that a single person can have a bad day and cause a problem like this, then that is ultimately on the CEO for not making sure that they have that redundancy, you know, throughout such a safety critical thing as, as an airplane. So yeah, that's, that's my take on it. Okay, and that that's a good take, right? So the you're saying that there's there's multiple groups within Boeing that should have caught that problem. My take on it is that was done, right? So they had all those people in place. They did, right? It'd be different if they didn't have a quality organization or if they didn't had look at a redundant design, which they did, right? So they had multiple layers there before the door came off. It didn't come off on the first flight. It came off on like flight twenty or something, right? So it had something had changed over time, and mechanics and technicians were alerted to the fact, because the pilots alerted to the fact they had pressurization losses. So they had people looking at it who didn't diagnose it properly at the airline. It, it, it's sort of a, a lot of people, in order to get to an accident situation, there's usually a lot of people who didn't catch on to what the real problem was before it happened. I look at it from a, a different perspective in that, like the CEO has nothing to do with that. Obviously, the, a company like Boeing has audits and inspections and auditors and oversight and the FA is over there and their internal processes, right? So there's, they built in multiple layers to go catch these things. If it didn't catch this and they obviously need to go back and look, I look at it on the, on the wind turbine side where the failures tend to be more systemic and where are those quality controls in place? And they don't have those things. They don't have the level of oversight. They don't necessarily have all the ISO certificates. They don't necessarily have the audits like they probably should, like a Boeing would have. But it's just as critical importance, right? When we had the icing events down in Texas, it told you how important wind or any energy sources that people die, like a lot of people died. It's not as important, though. I mean, it's it's reasonable that there's a, dif a, a difference. No, there's not really much difference. It's like 70% of the energy in, in Iowa is from electricity. And no, I mean, come on. I mean, an airplane dropping out of the sky and killing everyone on board is a worst, worst case scenario than a wind farm icing up and... <laughs> A hundred people, but how many people died in how many people died in the icing event, Joel? Oh, there was it was a lot, lot more than that. Max nine, it was double digits. Okay, that is not that is not caused by wind turbine quality issues. Come on, we can go back and have a look at, at you know all of the the causes of that, but it is not because de-icing systems failed. I mean, it's maybe one of the causes is that arguably they um, they should have purchased wind turbines with with de-icing systems but the engineers had nothing to do with whether you know, they don't choose whether to put an icing system in that's a commercial that's a commercial decision what do you think Boeing is Boeing is a commercial company that was the developer's decision not to buy a thing with 
an icing system for Texas because it's, you know, icing in Texas is a once in a whatever event. It's, 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 it's stupid. That's why I said arguably, but it wasn't, it's not an engineer that decides that anyway, you know, it's, um, yeah, it's a, it's a commercial decision, not an engineering failure like this, this Boeing thing is. I mean, if we want the same level of quality control in a wind turbine as in an aeroplane, then it's going to cost more like an aeroplane costs and have the same maintenance costs as an aeroplane costs. And then we don't have any wind turbines because they are way too expensive. So, I mean, you, you can't, um, you know, you can't demand the same the same type of quality. If you do that, Rosemary, though, then, then you, and you have problems, seems Gamesa, and you have problems because you don't have that hierarchy there, you don't have those structures in place. And when it does go sideways, like it did with Siemens Gamesa, why is then the heads of Siemens Gamesa not responsible for that? I get the, I get the Boeing thing. They got plenty of layers of organization. Siemens Gamesa didn't. I'm not saying that, that they shouldn't be. It's ultimately leadership in, in either case. And I think that in both cases, probably they had the systems in place, but then, you know, when you have um, the reality of commercial pressures where you're trying to cut costs and get projects out faster, develop faster than your, you know, your standard procedures would allow you to, then you get pressure from the top down to to cut corners, to not quite follow the, you know, like you usually do a technology development process like a, a stage gate model where you know, you do um, phase one of development and then at the end of that, you're supposed to have met certain criteria, which means that you are given the all clear from, you know, um, certain gatekeepers to move through the next phase. And it's really common if, if you have, um, you know, a specific end date that you have to reach for commercial reasons that you'll say, OK, well, we haven't met this one thing, but we're going to move through and do that in the next phase as well. And, you know, that's that's quite normal. Um, fine. But if it ends up being you're skipping most of the checks that you're supposed to have um, and moving forward before you have fully, you know, eliminated the risk that you were supposed to, it can get too much and you can end up with with failures because, you know, like how else could it be that so many different people who should have caught a problem didn't? It can only be um, because, you know, there was some systematic thing that's changed all of their <laughs> their job compared to, you know, how it used to be. Um and then in the case of the, the Siemens Gamesa thing, I, I also still think that it's possible that it was just honestly something weird that nobody expected um, with likely some, some sort of weird response to it that was probably like politically or commercially motivated to, you know, um, maybe sweep, sweep something that seemed small at the time under the rug um, and has in hindsight turned out to be a, a bad decision. But no matter what the company that, you know, the responsibility ends with the CEO and, you, you know, like it, it, there's a chain of responsibility all the way down. So why did they fire the engineers at Seamus Gamesa? Uh, it's shocking to me. I, I don't think that's <laughs> the right call, you know, any more than you would fire that one, um, that one worker that, you know, for, forgot something. I mean, you could, but. Though I think you should. You could fire that, that person. You could fire that person. But if you think that that is the end of your problems, then you deserve to be also fired and responsible for the next problem that occurs, you know? If you repeatedly left the bolts out of a door, because it's going to be one person. I've been telling you before this all comes out, it'll be one person. If the CEO of Boeing looks at this and says, I'm going to fire that worker, that one worker that forgot that bolt, there you go, end of problem. Boeing is an A-plus, super-duper quality company again. That CEO absolutely deserves to be fired. And for the next the next problem that happens, he should be personally responsible for, you know, the consequences because it's obvious that that is not, that, that is just total, total negligence to think that you can take the worker at the very bottom of the pile 
fire, fire them. I mean, if your company is built on your lowest paid workers needing to do the right thing every time, then, you know, everything that's built above that is, you know, it's like a, a, a I don't know, a sandcastle of its <laughs> built on. Apply that to Siemens Gamesa. I think that at the end of the day, it's a cultural thing. If this, if this, if Siemens Gamesa was not a company in Northern Europe and that company was headquartered in, I don't care, Boulder, Colorado, Arlington, Virginia, wherever, the same calls would be happening. It would be going, that guy is responsible because we're more of a capitalistic society that isn't propped up. When you have, you have the German government going, oh, we'll give you some loans. We'll help you out. We'll do all this stuff like that. That's it's, it's, I mean, this is a really stupid and ignorant thing to say, but people in the U.S. have been saying that about business in the EU for a long time. I'm not saying the same thing shouldn't happen to Siemens Gamesa. I'm saying what should happen at Boeing, and it should be it should be similar at, at Siemens Gamesa. You know, I'm not saying that there's no responsibility further up. There is. It's the same. Um, so, you know, different different issues um, and potentially different causes, but in both cases, you can't just say, "Oh, it was." You know, imagine if um, you know Siemens Gamesa do their root cause analysis and they find out that. Um, okay, yeah, on every day that one of these defective blades were built, you know, this one worker was working, fire them. Um, now our problem's gone, you know, continue on our, our merry way without making any changes. I, I mean, that would be absolutely nuts also to, to think that you have now solved a problem. I mean, you have to look at how that worker was able to make a mistake. And in fact, I mean, anybody who's done root cause analysis will say, you can't end your root cause analysis at a person did something wrong. That's never that's never the root cause. Ne never ever. It's multiple people. People would never be the issue. It's so it's so easy. It's what everybody everybody. It it has to be a systematic thing. Otherwise, you can't fix it. Because if you're, I mean, otherwise you're saying your solution is, oh, okay. Well, evidently this project team just really sucked. So next time we'll pick people that don't suck and then we won't have any problems anymore. Like you can't, that's not a way to, um, you know, ensure quality for your company moving forward. You have to have, you have to have, <laughs> yeah, it, it would help. Maybe one of your things is, um, you know, better employee, a, a better way to ensure that um, employees are higher quality, making sure that their training is better. You know, all of those things to end up at the same, you know, result that you have less sucky employees, but it's not just, you know, like it, it, it's a system that you're putting in place to make sure that, that it has to happen that way. Um, yeah, it's just, uh, it, it's the way that it always, people always want to go down that way of, of blaming somebody, um, a person and thinking, you know, we would, we would never do something so stupid. And of course, with hindsight, you wouldn't do something so stupid, but you know, every mistake that you've done, you wouldn't go back in time and, <laughs> and do it again now that you know that that's a possibility. Um, sure, but there's a, Rosemary, there's a difference between doing something that's like, you know, on the fringes of, of uh, you know, technology versus leaving out the bolts. <laughs> that's going to be, I, I would almost guarantee it's going to come down to a person at, in the Boeing situation. It's not, probably not systemic. It's a, it's a person. No, this is my this is my hill to die on. I, uh, a million percent disagree with you there. No, <laughs> I, I can't. I can't agree agree on that, or even agree to disagree. I think you're wrong. Oh, okay. I mean, it's a prediction. It's not. It's not a certainty. It's a prediction. I think what happened at Siemens Gamesa because they've basically admitted it is saying they had a design group and manufacturing group that made a lot of uh, gross errors. That's what they're saying, and this is why they're probably going to get sued because we've seen the lawsuits start to pile up. Is they essentially admitted that the design group had some sort of catastrophic design uh, issue that they should have caught earlier and then before they made a couple thousand blades. Could that same thing be true for this Boeing MAX 9 aircraft at the end of the day? In six months, can we hear that? 
Yeah, engineering group failed, and we're going to get rid of all the engineers. Is that going to happen at Boeing? No, because as Rosemary's pointed out, there should be sort of a belt and suspender approach to design, and she's right. In aerospace, there is. So in that design, there are four bolts to hold it four different ways, and those four bolts evidently were either not in place or the nuts were off of them. So that they had bolts, a nut, a castle nut, and a, a cotter pin in there to keep the nut from rotating. If assembled properly, that is going nowhere ever. So they over-designed it clearly, and they put not just a nut and a bolt, they put a nut, bolt, and a pin in it so it wouldn't rotate off. That's a design. So from a design standpoint, they did all those things, Rosemary. What I'm saying is that the, somewhere down the line on the manufacturing side, somebody didn't put that together. Now, you know, I feel, I'm starting to feel sorry for this hypothetical worker because you don't even know that it was, it was the, the, the bolt inserter who's, who failed, you know, Bolt inserter Susan might have been called away to work on something else before she ever got to that. And, you know, she told her uh, supervisor. Not on every airplane. They're essentially finding on like the vast majority of the airplanes. Are they really? I didn't see that. So do you honestly think that, you know, <laughs> the poor, poor Susan just did the, the wrong thing every time and that's not, not a problem with her supervisor, whoever gave her training, um, whoever designed the quality method. Like Rosemary. You know, I, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to call you out on that, but you've been in the manufacturing sites as much as I have, and you, you've seen stuff that just boggles your mind, right? As a good engineer, someone who makes good designs for manufacture, I don't design something that relies on the workers doing the exact right thing every time. Your job doesn't stop there. Making a design that if made perfectly is going to do the job correctly. That's not the end of your design as, uh, your job as a design engineer for manufactured products. The end of your, your job is to make sure that not only when it's done perfectly, it works, but in all situations that could ever conceivably happen in the factory, which definitely includes people having a bad day, um, you know, losing, <laughs> losing the work instruction, getting called away to other things, and any, any conceivable issue, it still needs to be safe. And that is not, you know, that's not, the responsibility doesn't end with the, the manufacturing worker, and it's not even mainly their fault. Day one at mechanic school, bolt nut twist right that's what we're talking about we're not talking about anything complicated it, it was the world's most simple thing they didn't put put them on wrong yeah no I, that's why i'm saying that at some point it comes out of the person we're not we're not going any we're not going anywhere here i can't think of anything different to say but i'm convinced like i've moved my position absolutely zero percent from where i started <laughs> I did, i've not i've not moved at all i'm not asking you to move your position what i'm saying is it does seem weird that we apply two different rules to an, one to an organization that has a, a lot of hierarchy, a lot of checks and balances, and is intrinsically set up to have the redundancy in it. And we go to the other industry, which should have some of those things in place and evidently didn't. And it does. I can tell you, you know, I've worked with, I've worked with Siemens and engineering and manufacturing also. The, the recall of the recalls of blades is still happening way too much. I'm not saying it's good the the situation, and I'm not showing that saying that Siemens executives shouldn't be um, you know ultimately held responsible. In neither case, it's the fault of the worker. You know, it's not the fault of the worker for creating a, a wrinkle, even if it was possible to make it without a wrinkle if you were just a bit better at you know smoothing the fabric as you put it in the mold. You know, that's that's not their fault. Quality. Uh, like I, I mean, I've said it like a hundred times now. It's going to be really boring for whoever's listening to the podcast if. Uh, we leave this bit in, but it's it's a series of steps. <laughs> yeah, and I'm, I'm with you on the series of steps, but there's they made a mistake 600 plus times. Yeah, and that's my point is that when it's it's systematic, 
then that implies that it's not somebody having a bad day. That implies that there is something happening high up that has caused this pressure to make their systems break down. That's, that's the, I'm not saying that's definitely what happened. You'd have to do a root cause analysis to, you know, see what was happening in this specific case. But that is where I would start. You know, why, why were all of these, if you've got, you know, one thing that fails, then you can look at, you know, all the different reasons. But when you have got a series of things that cascading failures, then, then, you know, you have to look systematically. It, it's, it's just a logical place to start. When, when you have more than 10 blades that go bad in a, in, a, in, a, in a production sense, then I think you're in trouble. When you get to 600, you're really in trouble. That's, that seems to be more systemic to me. That's my point. Yeah, it's a it's a, it, it's a, it's a huge it's a it's a huge serial defect. It's the biggest I probably ever worked with. It's a huge problem. I think at the end of the at the end of the day, Alan, you're you're. I think what you're trying to say is the fact that one one door issue at Boeing has people calling for the head of Boeing is ridiculous compared to the idea that six hundred plus blades or issues have things and nobody's calling for the heads of Siemens Gamesa. Yeah, I think I'm more surprised about the response to Siemens Gamesa than I am to Boeing. Because I mean, honestly, it's not just one door at Boeing either. It's that, you know, the previous failures where plenty of people did actually die and they're still doing dumb stuff like this. I mean, that's that says something about a company culture and leadership for sure. Um, but yeah, it's Siemens Siemens Gamesa, how is it possible that you know we haven't um yeah, I don't know. We still need more time for things to come out, and I, I'm sure someone will be moved on. Well, yeah, but I, I think I think everybody would agree here, right? That we want Siemens Gamesa to be successful, and it doesn't seem like they're making those basic steps that you would see in other organizations to get over this hurdle. They it, it's it's continuing the pain. From my experience working with the. OEMs, I would say it's just as likely that they are taking the steps and they're just doing a terrible job of communication. I think their communication has been just atrocious. It's been nearly as designed to harm them as much as possible. It's, um, yeah, but I, I see that really commonly. It's like the bulk of my job working, you know, to help um, wind farm owners with their blade issues. The bulk of what I do is to help the manufacturers communicate what they're doing and reassure, um, you know, the the asset owners that they're being the problem is being taken seriously and things that are happening uh you know being done correctly because their instinct is just to hide everything and give these tiny bits of information that just really give off the impression that they're you know that they think that you're an idiot that you <laughs> you know just you know that they're taking them for a ride um so it wouldn't surprise me at all if that's given that they're you know similar similar culture throughout the whole wind industry that's just the way that they seem to want to communicate to their customers for a reason that I cannot comprehend Get the latest on wind industry news, business, and technology sent straight to you every week. Sign up for the Uptime Tech Newsletter at weatherguardwind.com news. All right, so GE Vernova announced its uh, Q4 results just when we were recording this today. So you'll hear this next week and get the summary right now, which is uh, the GE Renew Vernova renewable business lost about $300 million in Q4 of 2023. For the full year, the renewables business lost about $1.5 billion. Uh, they had GE Vernova had a large offshore order canceled. And Phil, you may know what that is off the top of your head because I, I didn't know when they said it. They didn't. They didn't say during the phone call. But over, overall, revenue was up as almost twenty percent to four point two billion. Onshore, they're expecting high single digit margins next year with a volume increase in production with the Sunzia project, and they think that number of orders is going to happen again next year. So they're not seeing huge growth because the Sunzia really skewed the numbers. Offshore is uh, looking up slightly. 
and uh, they're expecting substantial profit in 2024. Basically, the second half of 2024 is when they think the money is going to start rolling in. Investor Day is in March still, so set your calendars. And they're going to divest of one another. So Aerospace and GE Renault are going to break into separate companies sometime in April, as it sits right now. Phil, scared, worried, uh, or thinking that this is the worst is over? Not any more scared than I was about a year ago because this was all kind of fated to happen this way, you know. Um, by the way, the the order that got canceled was Ocean Wind, which I don't know why that's not at the forefront of your mind because, you know, we've been talking about Orsted quite a bit. Well, the vast majority of the debt is the big thing. I think isn't the debt the big thing? There's just a lot of debt on the books and they're going to transfer the majority of that over to the aerospace side, not to GE Vernova. So Vernova's going to end up with less to overcome, right? Yes, which is good for them. Um, but this, I mean, remember when we were seeing these cancellations, we talked about the fact that, you know, they were getting rid of $6 billion worth of orders that were going to be unprofitable. And Joel and I had a, a bit of a disagreement about whether or not that was a good idea. You know, because at the end of the day, yes, you're reducing unprofitable projects, but you're also reducing your your top line when you're about to IPO the company. And so the fact that they had this, you know, 1.4, one, you know, closer to maybe closer to 1.5 billion for the, for the full year, um, in a loss. I mean, that's, it's a problem. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, this is the remnants of what happened largely before they've kind of reinstituted this, let's get back to what was working for us about 15 years ago. Let's start producing workhorse turbines again and, you know, go back to, you know, the Model T, um, you know, you can have a wind turbine as long as it's a 2.8127 or apparently now a 3.6154. Uh, you know, so, I, I mean, I I wouldn't say the worst is over because it's always, you know, you can have some type of, macroeconomic thing that happens, what we still need to see is the Federal Reserve reduce interest rates. That's going to get offshore going for everybody again. And now they're talking about they're not going to do that until maybe May is when they're going to start doing the first rate cut. So that's delaying things. Um, but as for Vernova itself, I mean, they're not necessarily in a bad position. I, you know, you may have also seen I was uh, interviewed, you know, last week for a uh, a piece that came out in Recharge where, I mean, at the end of the day, like GE and Vestas are going to continue dominating the U.S. market for the foreseeable future. And the reason I said that is you still have, you know, all these issues that we've just been talking about with Siemens Gamesa haven't really resolved themselves as yet. And if they're not taking orders now, they're not going to be in a position to book any revenue from those orders until maybe 2026 or 2027. So good luck on profitability until then. Um, and Nordex is a turbine that, I mean, I don't know why people don't like it as much as they don't seem to, but it, it Nordex seems to be getting the table scraps of deals that just don't go to GE Investus, so, uh, which is unfortunate because, to be honest, if you actually look at the performance data, aside from some teething issues with, you know, some of their, you know, the 149, the 155, and the 163, They've actually had comparable performance to to Vestas, even in the U.S. market. If you look at the Nordex N149 and the the Vestas V150, they've had the same levels of performance. So, 
Yeah, I mean, again, going back to the question of GE, like, you know, GE's in not the best shape, but I guess you could say it could be worse. They're on the, they're not quite in the trough anymore. They're they're on the the beginning of the upward slope back to being profitable and being healthy again. I guess that's the best way to say it. I think one of the things I hear in the industry actually, and this is a, and a, a different statement is Vestas and GE versus Nordex. I think people like the support they get from Vestas and GE better in their FSAs. And I think that, and I think that's, that's the, that's the tipper for them because a lot of people are just signing FSAs because they don't want to go through the pain in the butt of trying to find all these technicians to run their wind farms. So they're like, ah, we'll just buy them and get an FSA. And Vestas and GE happen to have a little bit more horsepower behind them to support that. There is, but again, our, our analysis would suggest that you're, you know, like an independent service provider isn't any necessarily worse than the OEM. What makes them quote unquote worse is two things. One, they don't have enough information from the OEM to be able to do their job correctly as an ISP. Or two, they end up inheriting a project that's already seen a, a decline in performance. Because as we've talked about, and as Intel Store's data has shown, after at least 10 years in, on average, you're seeing a drop off in performance. And, and that's, you know, 10 years is usually now the minimum of the expiration of a, an OEM long-term service contract. So you're, you're then talking about as an ISP inheriting a project that's already, you know, 10 to 15 years old where the degradation's already happened. What we have seen is that most ISPs are pretty good at what they do and at least help sustain the level of performance for that asset over whatever the remaining 5, 10, 15 years of, of asset life is um, and, and prevent further drop-off. So, you know, but the, the OEMs haven't really done themselves a whole lot of favors either, even the GE Investus with the quality of service they have actually provided. So I'm not sure why everybody enjoys, you know, yes, it's an quote unquote easier thing to do just from a, from a contractual and negotiating standpoint, just to take the, the OEM service contract, but you're, you're shooting yourself in the foot uh, if you do, because it's more expensive than, than what it's worth. Rosemary, were you joining me and saying that Bernova is going to be profitable next year? In 2024, 25? I think the answer to that is yes. And I think Phil's nailed it where if Siemens Gamesa is not on the playing field, Bernova is going to score a lot of wins. Yeah, you know, I think, um, yeah, so 2023 was a year of the big wind energy crisis. And I think it will be mostly contained to that like as an industry whole. Obviously, the individual companies with the worst problems are going to continue to suffer this year. But uh, I wonder if it actually needed to happen because you know like it's it's so obvious to say uh, oh yeah they shouldn't be putting out you know a new um, platform every couple of years they should just stick to something that works and then get really good at making that and um, get them cheaper and I mean even engineering wise you also say that people uh, like to think that you know engineering says that with economies of scale you'll get better by having you know a bigger and bigger wind turbine but actually for the structural stuff it's the opposite um, and yeah, I mean, economies of scale really, uh, it's, it's too vague a term, but usually it means making a lot of them, not making really big ones. Um, so yeah, the engineering says we should sort of stay the same. And I know, you know, from my time in working in, in the industry with manufacturers at yeah various companies, 
the engine is never wanted to keep on going bigger, 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 bigger. It's not that, you know, they wanted to keep on bringing out slightly different things that it's so inefficient for, to, for your engineering resource to just, you know, constantly churn out things that are, you know, like not really game changers, like a slightly larger wind turbine uses all the same technologies as the one before. It's not a game changer, but it still is a lot of engineering effort to get, you know, all of the designs changed and checked and um, manufacturing processes done and all those, you know, layers that we just talked about. Um, where the pressure came from was it's commercial pressure and it was coming from um, customers. Customers wanted to buy the biggest turbine that they could get approval for on their site. And so, you know, the biggest one that they could buy. And so um, it was like... You, one manufacturer couldn't have said two years ago, we're stopping at three megawatts or, you know, five years ago or whenever. They just wouldn't have sold anymore after that. And so um, I think I remember saying this when we talked about Vestas has, you know, every net periodically tried to say, you know, things are going too big, we're going to stay the same. And at first I was just, you know, like so scathing, like, yeah, you can do that, but you're not going to sell any turbines. And I think, you know, now everybody is on board with, yeah, we're, you know, we're not going to go any bigger now. We're just going to work on, um, you know, <laughs> doing doing better, making one thing and um, making it cheaper. But the fact is that no one could have said that a few years ago because they would have used out on years of sales and they wouldn't, <laughs> they wouldn't be in a position to make that call now. It kind of needed everyone to say it at the same time. And I think that it did need the trigger of this, um, yeah, 2023 crisis. So I, I do join you in being optimistic for, um, yeah, for the profitability of Venova as well as the other manufacturers. I mean, the industry needs it and um, energy transition needs it too. So I think most people probably want that to happen. And never take the financial advice of an engineer, in which we're all engineers. So just ignore whatever we say. <laughs> Keep your money wherever you like. Yeah, we're engineers and, bus and business, uh, business owners, business people. So maybe we can take our financial advice a little bit more than, <laughs> than your standard engineer. I'll take my financial advice over Bill Gates, who is advising Bill Gates to go invest in some clothesline wind turbine. That we can all agree on. But, yep, I'm with you, Phil. That's going to do it for this week's Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Thanks for listening. And please give us a five-star rating on your podcast platform and subscribe in the show notes below to Uptime Tech News, our weekly newsletter. And check out Rosemary's YouTube channel, Engineering with Rosie. And she's had some fantastic episodes lately. And we'll see you here next week on the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast.